Yesterday, after I finished up doing some baby visits in the morning, I came home to continue my sermon preparation for, for this series that we're in. So I came home, I was about to reinitiate my studies, and I decided I needed to settle in a little bit because it was cold outside. I decided I was going to start a fire in the fireplace. So I grabbed some kindling and I put it in the fireplace and I got some paper and I put it underneath the kindling and I, I lit the paper. And then I turned around to my bookshelf to gather some books from my New Testament studies shelf. And I was mulling over what it was I was going to pull off of the shelf. I, I was looking for something in particular. Then all of a sudden, I was scared half to death by our fire alarm piercing my ears. And I whipped around to the fireplace and I saw smoke billowing out of the fireplace because there was a backdraft in my fireplace. Yes, I probably still smell like smoke today. I was not outside with a pack of cools. I had a fire blowing smoke into my house yesterday because I had a backdraft. Now, a backdraft occurs in a fireplace when there is downward pressure from the outside, but the fire is not hot enough to overcome that downward pressure. So the smoke blows back into the house, making it unlivable. The book of Hebrews is a sermon written to a group of first century urban Christians who met together in a small house church. They had professed faith in Christ, but now they were experiencing a social and political backdraft. Downward pressure from the outside was overwhelming these Christians because their fire, their love, their commitment to Christ was not hot enough to weather the downward pressure. It was not strong enough to overcome, to push back against the downward pressure. They were being overwhelmed. So the preacher of this sermon sets out to stoke the fire and to sound the alarm. That, that's essentially what the book of Hebrews is all about. The preacher is trying to stoke the fires of their love and commitment to Jesus while simultaneously sounding the alarm so that they will take heed of the warnings throughout this book. He's warning them of dangers that are closing their ears and causing them to drift away from Christ. Listen, he offers no gimmicks. He doesn't offer false promises of, of the possibility of their sufferings going away and their trials disappearing. He doesn't offer false promises that all of that is going to be made okay. He doesn't offer them a political strategy for navigating the Roman Empire that was pressing in on them in very unjust ways. That's, this, none of this is what he does. What he does do is he stokes the fire and sounds the alarm, leading them to the many excellencies of Jesus Christ and warning them of, of the consequences of turning away from who Jesus is, turning away from Jesus and everything that he holds out to us in the gospel. Jesus, throughout this letter, is going to be 
extended to the people as the great high priest of his people, the great shelter, the great refuge in this time of conflict. But the question is, will will they hear? Will they listen? For the next few weeks, we're going to walk through this incredible section of Scripture because we too are experiencing downward pressures from the outside, are we not? The Christian community always has when rightly lived out. If we're honest about our own hearts, we know that oftentimes our fire is not hot enough and we're in danger of a backdraft phenomenon that makes it difficult to stay in the Christian faith. That's where we are situated in our cultural moments. But this sermon, called the book of Hebrews, continues to speak to us as well. So we're going to turn in our text today to hear the witness and the warning. Let's look at the witness in our text. This text bears witness to the supremacy of Christ and the finality of his word. This text is testifying. If, if you could think about it this way, what you are listening to in this book is a preacher engaging a congregation that is in a dangerous situation. And we're getting a chance to listen in on a divinely inspired sermon that is written to a group of people in a very similar situation to you. This is an urban house church. It's a city church plant. Maybe 15 to 25 people gather together for worship. But this is the community that's being threatened. Their profession of faith set them apart from the social circles of their broader community in which they lived. They were facing state-sponsored attacks against their community. They were being falsely accused of arson. They were being falsely accused of burning down major parts of the city. It was actually a crazy Caesar named Nero, but he took it upon himself to blame the Christians, and they got a bad rap for it. They were living under the threat of being dragged to the Colosseum and thrown to wild animals for public entertainment. Their evening dinner could be interrupted by the inbreaking of Roman guards coming to take them away and throw them in prison for their only crime being professing faith in Jesus Christ. And in the quiet moments where they were by themselves, laying on their beds, trying to go to sleep, it was the the imagination that ran wild and the anxieties that this stoked that was probably oftentimes even worse than the actual events that they were worried about. The anxiety constantly plaguing them. Think about what if this happens and then imagine this evil scenario and then imagine how bad this would be and imagine what would happen. It's like, it may never happen, but... Their anxieties have cost them so much stress. This is the situation of these these people. They felt incredibly vulnerable. They felt incredibly vulnerable at the mercy of a merciless Caesar. Imagine this little community gathering together like we do every Sunday, ready to hear the sermon of the week, 
or some kind of encouragement. And they get news when they come into the gathering that there is a letter that has come from one of their leaders who, who used to be in their mix. Someone they really respected, who played a pivotal, pivotal role in their faith. And then someone stands up, they take this letter, it turns out to be a sermon, and they begin to read to the people. And th this is what they hear. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. In their time of anxiety and suffering, in their time of affliction, they are certainly wondering Where is God? We all know that nagging question, don't we? When things go wrong, when things happen that we, we weren't expecting, when life just takes us by surprise and we are going through difficult times, it is, it is very easy, it's very normal to ask the question, where is God? Where are you? Why don't you say something? Why don't you do something? The writer of Hebrews was in touch with the pastoral realities. And this is what he says to them. Essentially, God has done something and God has spoken. Are you listening? Are you listening? Because what we see in this text is that everything that God wanted to communicate to humanity He has said fully and finally in his son. That is his mode of communication. He talks about the sporadic modes of communication from back in the past. God spoke to people in dreams and, and visions and oracles and, and different modes of revelation. But all of that has come to a head. It has come to a fulfillment. It has come to a fullness in Jesus Christ. God doesn't just use words. He uses the word made flesh. This is how God communicates what's really on his heart. This is how God expresses the fullness of his love in his son. This is how God expresses his ultimate commitment to us in his son. This is how God expresses his faithful presence with us in his son. He has told us of our great hope in his son. He has extended to us and detailed for us his great comfort in his son. Everything that God has ever wanted to say to us, he has said in his son. God has a message for these fearful people right in their very place of vulnerability. God is speaking to them in their place of vulnerability. He's speaking to them in their place of anxiety and fear. He's speaking to them in their place of wavering commitment in their faith. God is speaking to them and he is saying, don't look out there for some answers. Let me narrow your search down. Everything that you need to know to live the life of flourishing, everything you need to know to to deal with your anxieties and your fears and your concerns is in him. And that's why he spends the rest of this book 
expositing, explaining, detailing the fullness of Christ as our mediator. That's what we have throughout this text. He's signaling to them that what they need is a greater understanding and greater uh, orientation to what God has revealed in his son. He's letting them know that a new age has dawned. You see that in the language of the text. In these latter days, God has spoken to us. He's saying there has been a shift in time. It's like the shift between B.C. and A.D. And here's the deal. Essentially, what these people are guilty of is a B.C. kind of living in an A.D. context. A.D. meaning Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. This is the year of our Lord, but they're living as if he has not come yet. They're carrying the fears that he promised to take up for them when he came. They're carrying the anxieties that he told them to cast upon him because he's come. They're guilty of B.C. living in an A.D. context. But what he wants to do is alert them. You live in a new age. You live in the age of the resurrection. You live in the age of hope. You live in the age of the defeat of the great enemies of humanity. Sin, death, and the devil. The victory has been won. You are heirs of this hope. You must pay attention. The writer is bearing witness, as we said, to the supremacy of Christ, and he's bearing witness to the finality and certainty of God's word. God has spoken. Take it to the bank. The person and work of Christ is God's message to the vulnerable, the fearful, the despairing, the tempest-tossed, the frustrated, the busy. This is God's word. It's in his son. Jesus is the only commentary, friends, that will make sense of their current situation. And Jesus is the only commentary that will make sense of your current circumstances and your current life, your current reality. Jesus is the commentary on human life. He tells you in his person and work, you see in him everything that has gone wrong with humanity and everything that God has done to make it right. You see in Jesus our great failure, but also God's great love. You see in Jesus the depths of God's concern. You see in Jesus that pain can be redeemed. You see in Jesus that God always has a plan. No matter what things seem to be going like right now in your life, God is at work. Nothing can thwart it. You see in Jesus that nothing can separate you from the love of God in him. You see, in Jesus, that God is able to turn things on their head. We say this all the time. We say this all the time, but here's a reality. If you were staring at Jesus on Good Friday, if you were a spectator on Calvary, and you were looking at this scene, your conclusion would be that this is just another life wasted, another zealot, crucified at the hands of the Roman Empire. Nothing meaningful will come of this. They do this all the time. Go on to another day. But in light of the resurrection, what we see is a new lens on all crosses that we must bear, 
What we see in Jesus is the hope of resurrection on the other end of every trial that we face. He's the God who may not take you out of the fire, but he promises that when you pass through the fire, he will be with you. When you pass through the waters, he will be with you. He's the God who does not take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the furnace. He's the God who goes into the furnace with them so that everyone around them looks on them in astonishment. And they say, there's a fourth man in there. And they have not been consumed. Everything that God has ever wanted to say to us has been said in his son. Are you listening? The writer of Hebrews, after telling them this this statement of communication from God, he then begins to expound upon the son in whom God has spoken. You see it in the text. He is the eternal son who radiates the glory of God from his very person. He's not like a mirror reflecting. He's like a fire emanating. He shares the very essence of God Almighty. He is the eternal son, but he's also the incarnate son who has made purification for sins. And let me tell you something. The best three words that a sinner has ever heard is this. He sat down. Do you see that in the text? He sat down. I love that. Do you know why I love that? Because there was an article of furniture that was not present in the, in the tabernacle or the temple in the Old Testament. And that was a chair. Because the work of the priest was never done. They never had time to sit down. They were constantly making sacrifices for the people. They were constantly offering up prayers on behalf of the people. But there was a mercy seat. (laughs) There was a mercy seat that leads us forward to the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate intercession that God's people have in Jesus. And Jesus' sacrifice was of such a character that he could offer it once and then sit down, resting in kingly repose at the right hand of God the Father, signifying that his sacrifice was acceptable, the debt has been paid, there's no more claim on the people of God. They have ultimate security. The eternal son, the incarnate son, and he is the exalted son because he is seated, enthroned in the position of honor at God's right hand. You see, these people were tempted to take refuge in their previous faith of Judaism because it was a legal religion in Rome. In other words, there would be no state-sponsored persecution of that religion at that time. But Christians were fair game. These people were tempted to go back. They were tempted to go back to B.C., you know, you and I are, are also tempted to take refuge in other safer things, aren't we? It seems safer to take refuge in a solid career. I can beat back the opposition through my credentialing. It seems like but many to take refuge in your financial situation. But many people found out in 2008 that that's a bad bet when their 401k went down the drain. Many stories like this. 
Many people take refuge in the wrong kinds of things to get protection. But what we're seeing in this text is that Christ is the sure refuge. This is all preparatory for what we're going to jump into in the rest of the book. They're tempted to take refuge somewhere else. But you must hear the witness of this passage. In all your deep griefs, in your lonely sorrows, in your difficult sufferings, you will find Jesus there in your fiery temptations, in your pressing needs, in your daily infirmities. Listen to God's message that has been spoken in a son. You find God's victory in the son, his sympathy, his provision in his son. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning through the sun. He can turn your mourning into dancing through the sun. He can make humiliation give way to exaltation through his son. Everything that God wants to say to us is said in his son. These light and momentary afflictions cannot compare with the weight of glory that is laid up for us in Jesus. Do you see this? We spend so much of our time trying to get rid of the pain that we don't know how to endure in it. What we see in Scripture is not different routes of escaping the pain, afflictions, and trials of this world. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. I've overcome the world. This is the, this is the gist of the letter. Endurance, faithful endurance, because Jesus is better than anything else you could turn to. Where else would we go? That's the question. But in verses 5 through 14, the, the, the author, the writer of this sermon deepens, deepens the theme for us. All right, What he does is he, he, he knows these people are in danger of going back to their former faith that was, that was supposed to be the building blocks to get them to the completion of their faith in the Messiah, in Christ. They're tempted to go back. And their understanding of Revelation, their understanding of how we got the Old Testament was that it was mediated to them through the angels. That was their understanding. That was the understanding of Hellenistic Jews at the time. They understood Revelation, God's revelation to Moses and all the Old Testament figures, was mediated through angels. It was angels who showed up and said, this is what God says. So do you see what he's about to do? This is what he's about to do. He's about to show the superiority of Jesus over the angels to show the superiority of God's communication in Jesus over the communication given through angels. Jesus offers a truer, better, fuller revelation of God than the angels did. So he goes into this argument, but, but what he does, he, he does a, a technique called chain quoting. It's where you pile up a bunch of quotes in order to emphasize your point. And this is his point. You got to see, I want you, when you go home, to go and check the scripture references of this passage and go and read the Psalms that are quoted in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. What he does is beautiful. He pulls from these Psalms that are specifically contextualized to their current struggle. He goes back and he says, Back in Psalm 2, look at, look at this, look at this, look at this. This is important. 
Verse five, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? That's from Psalm two. And you know what the theme of the Psalm is? The theme of the Psalm is the victory of the Messiah over the enemies that are oppressing the people of Israel. Let me, let me give you just a little sampling of that Psalm. This is the Psalm that he quotes. And I guarantee you that these Hellenistic uh, Jews culturally uh, knew the entirety of this Psalm. This is what the Psalm says. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do you see? He's, he's flagging for them God's word of warning to the imperial dictators who are currently pressing in on them. He says their time is short. Endure. They will receive a just retribution. Endure. Look to Jesus. Hear him. Do you see this? It's like... It's like when I was a kid and my, I'd be picking fights with people bigger than me. And all of a sudden, one of my older cousins would come and they would put the threat out to this person. Now, this person could take me out, but I wasn't concerned because the person who was backing me had promised to put this person in their place. It's something similar to that. He's, he's pointing them back to the Psalms that point them to God's power and victory over the enemies that are currently oppressing them and stressing them right now. Verse six, you see a, a, a note, a, a, final, a final quote from Deuteronomy, all right? And this is the final song that Moses sings to the people of Israel before he dies. And in that context, guess what? It's all about God's victory over the enemies. He quotes 2 Samuel 7. The son's intimate relationship to the father makes him the primary communicator on God's behalf, but also the communication itself. Verses 8 through 9, he quotes Psalm 45. This is a royal psalm in a wedding context, and it explores the military prowess of the king. And you know what? The vibe coming from it is celebration. It's festivity. You know why? Because everybody knew that when a good, powerful, righteous, and just king was on the throne, everybody was safe, even the vulnerable. And the writer is telling them, your good, just, righteous king is seated on the throne. You are safe. 
in an ultimate way, you are secure. In verses 10 through 12, he quotes Psalm 102. I love it. This is, look at that. This is what he's saying. He is saying, look in this text. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will ball them up and throw them away. That's what he's saying. This world is ugly. This world is broken. I know you lament it, but lean into the one who one day is going to wrap it up for a new heaven and a new earth. He has all the power. He is in control. This is what he's directing them to. This is the Jesus that you have claimed to trust. And in Psalm 110, the priest, king, we see him making enemies into a footstool. Do you know what that reference is? This is what it references. When one king defeated others in the ancient Near East, all the defeated kings would come and in, a, in a display of defeat and in a display of fidelity, they would bow at the feet of the king who was sitting on his throne, his feet on the footstool. They would bow and they would kiss his feet to show that they were now in his service. And what this, what this writer is telling us is that even the enemies of this fledgling community are in the service of Jesus. They're under his control. They do not get to you except through his, his hand. They serve his purposes. Your suffering serves his purpose. Your afflictions serve his purpose. Your opponents can only advance his mission when you endure. But endure you must. The forever status of the son is supposed to turn into the forever stability of God's people. This is the witness of the text, but there's a warning in the text as well, briefly. The warning in the text comes in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. After his initial statement of witness to the supremacy of Christ and the finality of God's word, the author issues a warning. He says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. They're in danger of drifting due to their neglect. They're paying more attention to the daily news headlines than they are to the final word of God communicated in his son. They're more in tune with the daily news than they are with the good news. So do not be surprised if your life is filled with anxiety and stress and strain if you're more in touch with the daily news than you are with the good news. We ought to have a growing fluency in the gospel. We ought to be deepening in our understanding of God's word, what it entails, how it shapes us as individuals and as a community Understanding the bounds within which we can operate faithfully as Christians and the things that are out of bounds for Christians, according to God's word, that help us to remain faithful, tuned in. According to this preacher, I'm going to go back and forth between calling him a writer and a preacher. According to this preacher, there are two options, pay attention or drift. There's no, there's no neutral ground. 
You either pay attention to what you have heard in the gospel or you drift. And here's the deal. It doesn't take any special effort to drift. It doesn't require any animosity to drift. You don't have to harbor malicious intent in order to drift. Drifting can be imperceptible because it happens in the smallest increments over time. Do you know how you drift? You drift by a thousand small decisions to put, to put your faith on the back burner. To make it the condiment instead of the main entree. You drift by giving more of your attention and your time and your concern to secondary things rather than to the one who is primary. That's how you drift. That's how you drift. This is the road to despair. This is, you see the connection? This is the road to despair. When you lose touch with your great security in Christ, you will live in fear. If you lose touch with your great hope in Jesus, you will lose, you will lose hope. You will be cynical. You will always think the worst of people. You will not know how to relate joyfully and graciously with other people. You see, all of the breakdowns are a result of drifting. The surest route to despair, cynicism, and spiritual decay is the easy, casual drift. Our big, our big challenge is not the major moments of life. It's the small decisions daily. If you make a practice of prayerlessness, you will find yourself drifting. If you make a practice of leaning on the Bible study you did a long, long, long time ago, rather than being with God now, you will drift. If you treat community as nice when you feel like it, you will drift. You will drift. But the warning is, we must pay must closer, must much closer attention. As we continue through the rest of this series, I want you to pray that the Lord would stoke the fires within. Not only within your own heart, pray that the Lord would stoke the fires within your spouse. Pray that the Lord would stoke the fires within your children because they have to go into difficult circumstances in school. Pray that the Lord would stoke the fires in your roommates if you're single. Pray that the Lord would stoke the fire in your men's or women's group or your community group. Pray that the Lord would stoke the fires in our congregation. We want to be faithful. We, we have been tasked with a very clear calling as the church. We want to remain faithful to that. Let's pray throughout this series that he would stoke the fires within and give us the grace to overcome the downward pressures from the outside. The only way, listen, the only way that we can effectively and lovingly be for the world around us is if we maintain our distinct identity from the world around us. Do y'all hear me? That's the only way we can be of any use to the world around us. That's the only way we can lovingly care for the world around us. We must maintain our distinct identity in the Son. God has spoken. Let us hear. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have spoken. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for the fullness of your commitment when it would have been so easy at so many points to just 
throw in the towel on us. We're grateful to have you. We're grateful to have one another. And we pray that even if there's just a a flickering little flame in our hearts, or even if there's just a, a, a small little wick smoldering, we pray that you, by your spirit, would bring it to, to full fire, bring it to a fullness of love and adoration for you so that we can endure. Help us, be with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.